Oh, yeah, this is on. A song. Yes, okay, let's uh, not do that. <laughs> okay. That looks interesting. I don't know that I've seen that before. <laughs> I'm waiting for my technical assistance to, to come forward. Oh, I think we just blanked it. Oh, yeah, great. is that right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, even I knew that. No, wait, spoke too soon. Here we go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, no, come back, no. <laughs> well, you know, it's good. Now, um, Rod mentioned uh, that it's interesting to hear how people who are saved have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons why I uh, enjoy... Is this a little loud to you? It sounds a little loud, echoish to me. No, thank you. Um, why I enjoy hearing testimonies, which is somebody telling how and what they know. And so today I'm going to share what I call my testimony, but what I like to refer to as God's grace in a life, because I don't really want it to be so much about me. I really want it to be more about the, what the Lord has done. And um, in order to do that, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, and hopefully that will magnify uh, the grace of God and tell a little bit of something about the grace of God in a life. I was going to read, I think I am going to read a couple of portions of Scripture. If you want to follow along, they're found in the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And we'll drop down to verse 36. Luke 7 and 36. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner." Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. He said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, but thou gavest me no water for my feet. She hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, 
For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. And then look over, if you would, into Luke chapter 8. And look down to verse 40. came to pass when, that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man called Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had only one daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman having an issue of blood, twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched or ceased. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue or power is gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling. And falling down before him, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her daughter, Be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Now, perhaps you haven't read these two accounts in a while, these two different women. But there are similarities and there are differences between these two accounts. Two women, dissimilar in this. The first woman we read about, the Scripture declares, was a sinner. And by that, it seems what is meant is that everybody knew she was a sinner. She had a reputation, and it was known. Because of that, she would have been sort of outside of acceptable society because of her lifestyle. The second woman, it's not said of her in the same way that she was a person, a woman with a reputation like that. She had a problem, though. She had a problem because she had some form of physical ailment that caused a flow of blood a hemorrhaging, or whatever it may have been. Bad enough as that was physically, in the society in which she lived, the Jewish society, anyone who had a flow, an issue of blood like that was considered unclean. She also would have been outside of acceptable society. So they had that in common. They also had in common that the Lord made a declaration concerning both of them. To the first woman, he says, thy faith has saved thee. To the second woman, he said, thy faith has made thee whole. The word in, from the Greek language for whole and save is an identical word. The concept is the same. Salvation is to be made whole. And yet there were some differences between these two women. 
But again, what's interesting is the Bible is filled with real-life accounts of people who came to meet, to know not only the Lord Jesus Christ, but through meeting him, found the forgiveness of sins and salvation. You know, we sometimes think that even in a court of law, there are certain forms of evidence that can be very powerful. And the Bible is filled with every form of evidence that you can think about. Eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness testimony, very powerful. Documentary evidence. All sorts of evidence, but eyewitness accounts. People who really met Jesus Christ and discovered the forgiveness of sins. People are from quite dissimilar backgrounds. That's very important because I'm getting ready to tell you about my life and what it was before I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be here this morning and you might think, you know, my life is nothing like that. I hope your life was nothing like what mine was. But just because your life wasn't the same as what mine was, just because you didn't do the things that I did, there's one fundamental truth that the Bible declares, and that is that we're all sinners. See, sometimes the problem is in life, we just use the wrong measuring stick. We look at somebody like you could have looked at me in my life past and think, you know, I wasn't as bad as that person there. Or we look at another person in life and, you know, you can always find somebody that you're better than. But that's the wrong standard. When the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the only standard that God can use is his own perfection himself. And you see, there's a beautiful thing there because the Bible says in that sense there's no difference. When we measure ourselves up against God's standard, we've all missed the mark. And therefore, salvation is available to all of us on the basis of the free grace of God through what Christ has done. Now, when I was young, I didn't know that. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I, I didn't come at what I do now by being influenced by generations of people who taught me the things of God and taught me the Bible or any of that. Quite different. You young people that are here, um, you'll probably see some things here that you might find interesting, maybe even find comical some of them, but nevertheless, um, if you're here, I want you to remember that you don't have to go out and live a horrible lifestyle and then get saved out of all the mud and filth of sin. You can get saved as a young person and be delivered from all sorts of horrible things. And so, don't think either when you look at this, wow, you lived such an exciting life and it all turned out good for you in the end. Because as I'll mention, that's not really the accurate story. So we've done way back in, dug way back into the archives here. And uh, let's see if we can get this thing to work. There we go. Yes, I heard the sighs go forth. Yes. <laughs> This is me, and by this you'll be able to tell my age. I was six years old. The year is 1960. It's what I call my annual Easter suit. I did have a great-grandmother, and I think looking back that she probably was a, a Christian, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I didn't know enough at the time, was too young to really 
care about anything like that. But she worked at a department store in downtown Jacksonville, Florida, where I was raised. And um, that's back, believe it or not, folks, there was a time when there weren't things called a mall. And people actually went to downtown to the stores to shop. So she worked at a very nice clothing store. And every year at Easter time, she'd buy me a brand new suit, squeeze me into that new suit, take me down to the big church to where she went, where I pretty much sat there just kind of, you know, looking at all the stuff that was around as often as, as the kind of things that a six-year-old child might do in a place such as that. And uh, that was really kind of the only influence that I had when it came to anything that had to do with Christianity or the Bible. Or, and, it, and so it was very minimal influence, as you can imagine. Now, the reason why I show you this picture is not to show you how incredibly handsome I was as a young man. You know, and uh, I know you can already tell that, but uh, it's, it's not really the reason why I use this picture. When I look at this picture, you might think a lot of things when you see this picture, but when I look at this picture, what I see is innocence. A young boy who's six years old. And, you know, there's some young people here, and I look at the young people here as you do, and you might have children, you look at your children, and, you know, you don't sit and think, oh, there's my child who's three years old, four years old, five, six years old, and one day they're going to turn out to be a horrible person. <laughs> one day my child is going to grow up and be an axe murderer, you know. I mean, not that I was an axe murderer, but, uh, uh, you know, you get the point. You, you look at a child in that sort of innocent look, and you have high hopes, you have great expectations, you think uh, they're going to be, you know, they're going to do wonderful things in life. And I had two parents who, even though my parents were not Christians, they did seek to raise me. And my dad disciplined me and taught me respect and, and all of those things. So um, it wasn't like they just cast me out to the wind and let me do whatever I want. Far from it. I mean, I had to obey the rules of the house, obey my father, respect my mother, and so I don't want you to get the idea that though my parents weren't Christians, that I had a, a bad home environment. I had a two-parent home, which today is not as common as it once was, and parents that stuck together in their marriage, and you know, so I had a lot of things on the ball in that sense, but when I see this picture, I think of, of innocence, really. When I think of that, I want to fast forward now. This is 12 years later. I'm sorry that the picture is not very clear. Uh, this is my mother. This is me. And I am now 18 years of age, and I have entered the uh, Florida prison system, state penitentiary, as a convicted felon for the first time in life. This is a picture that was taken on visitation day down near, sort of in the Sarasota area of Florida, with my mother, who came to visit me, as she often did, many times, because between this last picture you saw and the one there, well, let's just say this wasn't my first time getting in trouble. And that might raise the question, what happened to take someone from this to now this? Again, no parent sits and looks at their child and thinks one, one day my, my child is going to get into all these, these horrible things. You see, I had a, a family, like I said, a father that, you know, disciplined me, and I never regret that. Uh, 
a mother who cared for me and loved me, but I had a problem, and the problem was inside. And I grew up, and as I got a little bit older, I, I was rebellious. You know, I, I sort of got the idea that, listen, I don't want to do what anybody says. I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want anybody telling me any different. Now, the problem with that is you actually can pretty much do that. But there's a big downside. The Bible even says it this way. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. You can pursue a certain path and take a certain direction and do things, but it can lead you to disastrous results. And so as a young person, and I'm, I wouldn't tell everything that I ever did, I'd be too ashamed, but I'll tell you enough so that you kind of get the idea. As a young person, about the age of 13, I started experimenting with illegal drugs and uh, things that went along with that type of a lifestyle. It wasn't very conducive to things like going to school, and so... Uh, for a number of years, particularly in the eighth and ninth grade, I was out of school more than I was in. I never really completed the ninth grade as far as my formal education was concerned. I, um, they, they, they passed me, and then I never went to the tenth grade. I dropped out before I did very much uh, uh, time in the tenth grade and uh, gave myself over to doing what I wanted to do. Well, you say, well, what did your parents do? Well, they tried everything they could. They tried psychology. They tried discipline. They tried leaving me in jail when I got arrested, sort of a tough love approach. They tried everything that they knew how to do, but none of it could really bring about any change in my life. And I want to tell you, I have a lot of regrets as I think about my past, I put my parents through a lot of misery. I started leaving home because, you see, if you want to do what you want to do, but you got parents that don't want you to do it and are going to put the brakes on it, well, you got some options, right? You either live there and do what they say or you do something else. So when they told me things that I didn't want to hear or put restrictions on me I didn't like, I just leave. Started running away from home probably around the age of 14 or 15, first for a day or two here or there, and then later for months at a time. I remember one time when I was 15, I left home in an afternoon just to go out to play. I don't even remember if I have any shoes, had any shoes on. You know, it's Florida, summertime. Left in the afternoon to go out to play. Didn't show up for three months. My parents never knew where I was at. I'd hitchhiked up to Atlanta and as my mother had done before, she had to fly up and get me out of juvenile shelter where I'd been arrested. My parents wondered when I came home how come, even though it was hot in Florida in summertime, I used to wear long sleeve shirts all the time. And it was to hide the, the needle marks that were scarring my arms up and down. By the time I was 15, there weren't any drugs that were available that I hadn't done, and there wasn't any way you could do them that I hadn't done them. 
And so that was the kind of lifestyle I lived. Now that wasn't very conducive not only to school, but to other things like work. Work I tried to avoid, because you can't work and party all the time. You know, it just doesn't, you gotta kinda make a choice there. And I wanted to party. And so instead of working, I did other things to earn money, illegal things. And I gave myself not only to a life of drugs, but also to a life of, of crime. And so you can sort of get the sense of the direction that my life was taking. It was just one disaster after another. By the time I was uh, 17, actually, I had been arrested. I was sentenced to nine months in a county prison farm. And uh, nine months to me at 17, matter of fact, the way the judge sentenced me, he, he uh, sentenced me to three months, 90 days, and six months consecutive, which meant I had to do the 90 days, then the six months, instead of putting both sentences together. Well, when I was 17, nine months to me was like an eternity. And so uh, they put me on a county prison farm where I'd been before, and uh, back then what you did is you worked under a shotgun guard. You had one guard with a shotgun, one with a pistol, work crew out in the, in the residential areas, cleaning the ditches, cleaning the sides of the road, chain gang without the chains. Well, I determined from the first day I got there that I was going to escape. And so we, uh, four of us got together. We decided that, and a lot of this you're going to think doesn't sound too brilliant, you know, but I can tell you I wasn't thinking real brilliant back then. But we decided what we're going to do is two guys were going to get on one end of the work detail and two guys are going to get on the other end of the work detail because they only got one shotgun, so we'll all four run. We'll run different directions, and they might hit some of us, but they're not going to hit us all, you know. <laughs> That's kind of where our thinking was. So uh, I was in there, and I was working with a guy that I'd gone to a little bit of high school with named Jimmy Evans. I knew him, and he was arrested. He was in there, too, as were several other people, friends of mine. So Jimmy and I are working. Well, the second day, somehow or another, the guards got when that there was going to be an attempt, an escape. And so both guards on the second day are carrying shotguns. So the third day, and it's around July, in, in, uh, in the summer, around the 4th of July, it was a holiday weekend, but it, this was like a Friday. And uh, we're working away, and in the residential areas, they're kind of like where, you know, some of you folks might live. The, the roads are not that wide. The houses are fairly close in there. So, you know, there's not a lot of room in the yards and all. So we're working in this area, and it's just around noon, and a car comes by, and all of a sudden the car throws something out. It looked like a couple of packs of cigarettes. I don't know whether it was cigarettes, drugs, whatever. I don't know. But all of a sudden, all the inmates rush towards whatever it was that was thrown out in the middle of the road. And I turned to Jimmy. He was raking, and I was cutting, and I said, this is it. Let's go. And I ran and I looked behind, and Jimmy was raking faster than I'd ever seen him rake before. And the other two guys, I mean, they all sold me out, you know. And, and in the middle of the yard, there I was, I just kept running. Now I'm running, and I've got on knee-high rubber black boots, which <laughs> they don't, they're not like Nikes, you know. So uh, I immediately, I, I didn't know what to do. I panicked. I ran in a backyard. I hid in a little utility shed. I said, I've got to get rid of these boots. Got rid of the boots. And then I ran. I jumped over a fence. And when I jumped over the fence, here's this family sitting in their backyard because it's Fourth of July weekend, and they're having a barbecue, you know. And so I just 
stopped running, walked across the yard, jumped over the fence, and uh, kept going. Well, uh, the confusion that happened all around that stuff, the, the guards didn't even know I was gone for like an hour. And then finally, I don't know, it was the people barbecuing or who was called and said, hey, you guys missing anybody? <laughs> you better do a count. Well, I just kept running, and I got away, and I stayed gone for six months. But went back to my neighborhood around Thanksgiving time, something like that, and anyway, I was at my parents' house, and there was a local policeman who sort of had a vendetta against me, a lieutenant on the Jacksonville Police Force, and he had a vendetta against me because his son was every bit as bad as I was, but he blamed what happened with his son on me, which it wasn't, but that was, I guess, his way of saying it couldn't be my fault, it's that guy's fault. So he was looking for me, and I uh, was at my neighbor's house, and they said, police, only they used another term. And um, I didn't know what to do, so I ran back in the bedroom, laid down beside the bed. His name was Haddock, Lieutenant Haddock. And all of a sudden, I heard the bootsteps. I'm laying down beside the bed. I felt the shotgun come back to the nape of my neck. And he said, Price, don't move. I didn't move. And he arrested me. Well, unfortunately uh, for me, where I was involved in a misdemeanor for the nine-month sentencing, escape in the state of Florida is a felony that carries a, a potential sentence of 15 years. I didn't get 15 years. I got 18 months and was sentenced to prison for that 18-month sentence. I'll never forget going into that prison they take you to a processing, well, this is the way they used to do it, take you to a processing place to, you know, get you classified and do all this stuff and figure out what prison you're going to go to. And uh, I remember there was a, a busload of us, about 60 of us, that they took into this place called Lake Butler in, in Florida, and they march us all back into this room. And uh, there was a sergeant there named Sergeant Brown. And Sergeant Brown, he looked to me like he had uh, about a 24-inch waist and about a 62-inch chest. You know, he was just this big bulk of a guy, and he came stalking out there, flat-top haircut, and he had on these boots, these cowboy boots that you could stomp an ant in a corner with, you know. They were just so pointy. And he marched out there. He had his sleeves rolled up, tattoos, you know, and, and he looks at us, and he says, let me tell you something. Give me any ten of you, eight of you will be back. That's the recidivism rate. Eight out of ten of you. Of course, you're in the group thinking, not me, it'll be these other idiots, you know. <laughs> I'll never be back. Not that I'm going to change what I'm doing, but I'm going to get smarter and not get caught next time. That's the thinking, you see. So they march me in, and the next thing they do is give you a haircut, and mine was pretty long. So um, they sit me down in this chair, and it's inmates that are cutting your hair. Yeah. Where's Tori? <laughs> it's not exactly the cut you want, but, uh, but the funny thing was, it wasn't funny at the time. My parents used to always talk about a guy that lived in our neighborhood. He was the bad guy, you know, and his name was Johnny Nash. My parents used to say things like, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to end up like Johnny Nash. I heard that so many times. I sit down in the chair, and out comes the inmate barber. 
guess who it is? <laughs> it's Johnny Nash. <laughs> and all I can hear is my parents saying, you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to end up like Johnny Nash. And here he is in prison, and here I am sitting in the chair, and he's cut my hair. But it wasn't enough to change my life. I did my time, bettered myself with what I could, got my general equivalency diploma, courtesy state of Florida, got released, right back in the same lifestyle that I'd been in before. Matter of fact, I never quit doing the things I was doing when I was in prison and, and could do the things I do. This is a little bit later. Yeah, this is <laughs> 1975. Things got a little warm in Florida, and I don't mean by the weather. And so uh, I left Florida for Georgia, up to Savannah. But this was after I got my hair cut. Where's Tori when I need her, I tell you. Uh, anyway, back in the day, some of y'all will remember. Uh, well, maybe you remember. Farrah Fawcett and shag haircuts. Yes, men had them too. So I had my long hair cut and living in Savannah, Georgia now, doing the same kind of crazy stuff that I'd done before. This is me in the spring of 76, and uh, this is my $10 Mustang with a $7 paint job. Uh, I, I really wish I had that car. There's a lot of regrets I have, but I wish I had that car today. I think it was a 69, you know, and... and uh, Anyway, it wasn't blue. It was sort of a green, if you remember those sort of greenish colored Mustangs they had back then in cars. Um, and it's a long story of how I got it for 10 bucks. But yes, it actually ran. I drove it, you know. But anyway, things got a little warm in Georgia too, not from the weather. So I had to hurriedly disguise the color. So I went to Kmart. I bought six cans of blue and a, one can of black for a dollar a piece. I thought a two-tone would be nice. And I didn't even tape the windows or anything. I just sprayed that thing as quickly as I could. And uh, so it was blue and black. But you'll notice this is me, and you can tell, I mean, I'm pretty strung out uh, at the time this picture's taken. Um, I got arrested again, this time for a more serious charge. Uh, I robbed a drugstore, not for the money. Well, there was a little money, but mainly for the drugs. And uh, actually, kind of, I did get away, so to speak. But you know, you don't always get away. You don't finally ever get away with anything. But it was a weird thing. I'd backed the car into this place and went in and robbed this drugstore and got out of there and that night on the 6 o'clock news, they said uh, there's been a robbery at such such drugstore. If anybody has any information, you know, as they often do, call such such number. And would you know it, a little old lady just happened to be walking by and saw the car parked there and remembered the tag number <laughs> and called the police. <laughs> and it was my, wasn't this car, a different car, tag, and I got arrested. The police didn't find the weapon. I pleaded guilty to a lesser charge, but I got six years in the state penitentiary in Georgia. So now I'm a convicted felon the second time, but this time in the state of Georgia. Uh, this is me on the left, a couple of guys that I was in with, a little band we had at the time. It's one of the only pictures I have from that particular uh, era of life. Things began to change a little bit because in this program, it was supposed to be a youthful offender program, 
And one of the things they did in this program was to uh, develop a novel program in the state of Georgia at the time, a drug rehabilitation program. So what they did was they took about 60 of us inmates who all had drug-related charges of one type or another, and they put us all on a separate floor apart from everybody else, and we were involved in counseling programs and drug rehabilitation programs and that type of thing. And I remember that the uh, Atlanta Constitution, Journal Constitution, came down newspaper to interview because the program was kind of novel. And, and so they put us in a room. Well, you know, I tended to talk a lot, so they quoted a number of things that I said. But I'll never forget one thing that I said that they kind of ended their article with. I said, prison can never rehabilitate you. You have to rehabilitate yourself. Now, there's a kernel of truth in that. The problem was I couldn't find the power within myself to do what I said needed to be done. We knew even in that drug rehab program that drugs were not the problem. That was sort of our mantra, if you will. Drugs are not the problem. They're only a symptom of the problem. But the problem was for us, we didn't have anything that really got to the root of the problem that could change the person and take away those desires and, you know, make you different. Matter of fact, I worked my way up on the organizational chart in this drug program so that there was me and one other inmate and the whole rest of the floor was under us. We ran the counseling sessions, the programs. There were two free world men that were over us. In other words, they went home every day. They were counselors and, and they were over us, but we ran everything else 24-7 when they weren't there. What that primarily meant for me was that it gave me a lot of access on the floor and to other places so I could still get drugs because I was still doing drugs while I was counseling other people how to stop doing drugs and all at taxpayer expense. Go figure. Well, I eventually got released and uh, I got released on an educational release. This was my student ID in February of 1978. Milledgeville, Georgia, Georgia College. I was the second person in the state of Florida at the time to get an educational release. What that meant was, um, instead of being released to a halfway house and going to work, they released me to a halfway house where I was to take uh, college courses. Now, by this time, I was convinced that that's what I needed was education. If I could get enough education, I could change my life and I had decided that I'm going to pursue a, a career in psychology because if I can learn what makes the human mind tick, then I can get a hold of my problems and my life will be changed. You know, that, that's what I began to think. And so I began my classes uh, at, on the outside, living in a halfway house, having to report in regularly to a parole officer, or I was on parole, and attending college classes at Georgia College. Um, I never finished the first semester. 75 days after I was paroled, I was arrested again. A young lady that I was with at the time, had been with for some time, had come to pick me up with a couple of other guys and doing a lot of stuff we shouldn't have been doing, not really in the right mind. Stopped in a little town, they were filling the car with gas. I decided to fill my pockets with the money out of the cash register. The man who owned the service station decided he wasn't going to let me do that. 
and he ran in to stop me. I didn't really push him, but I kind of just, you know, brushed him out of the way as I was coming out, just trying to get away from him. Jumped in the car and told the guys, get out of here, let's go. Problem was, it was one of these little towns where there was only one road in and out of the town. <laughs> so as we're making our, quote, getaway, they were waiting for us. They pulled the car over, took us to jail. And when I woke up the next morning and sort of sobered up and realized what I'd done, realized that I knew I was going back to prison because I'd violated my parole. Knew that the charge that they had charged me with carried a 20-year sentence. They charged me originally with armed robbery. And uh, began to think about what my life had come to. I'll tell you what I thought. I thought to myself, for the first time in life, I'd never thought this, never thought this. See, I, I was always a runner. I was always like, you know, if, if the heat, like I told you a couple times, get out of Florida, go to Georgia. One town gets too bad, go to another. You know, just run. Get away from it. Leave the problem behind. You can always run. It's always a way out. Matter of fact, when they arrested me, they took me into this little room because the girl I'd been with there for a number, uh, for a while, they said, uh, you better go in there and say goodbye to her. You're not going to see her for a very long time. And they put us in this little room at the police station, and they shut the door. And I looked, and there was a window that was open. And I thought, you dummies, I'm out of here. You know what? Something hit me, and I said, you know what? I I'm tired of running. If I go out that window, I'm going to have to run and keep running the rest of my life. And so I didn't run. And I sat in that little jail cell there in a town called Thompson, Georgia. And I thought to myself, you know what? If this is all there is to life, and I'm going from one party to the next, one drunk to the next, one high to the next, one jail sentence to the next, and I got to go back to prison, life isn't worth living. I'd rather kill myself. And for the first time in my life, I considered suicide as a viable option. Now, I know that some folks won't understand that, that a person can get to the brink of such despair in life that taking your life seems like a solution. But unless you've been there, you won't understand it. I got arrested in a town called Thompson, Georgia. The only place I'd ever heard of Thompson. I thought, what a coincidence. One of the two free world men who had been in the drug rehab program where I was in prison was from Thompson, Georgia. His name was Bill. So they said, you get a phone call. Who am I going to call? I'll call Bill. So I look his number up in the phone book. I dial his number. Somebody answers the phone. Bill's not home. Now, I had been his model student. Bill was majorly disappointed. So Bill, when he finds out, I just tell the people on the phone, I said, look, just tell Bill, this is Larry Price. I've been arrested. I'm down here in McDuffie County Jail in Thompson, Georgia. You know, that's it. Bill gets home, tells his parents who, was, who answered the phone, listen, don't have anything to do with that guy. He's a loser. He's a drug addict. 
He's a manipulator. He's a convict. All he'll do is use you. And then he communicated to me down in the jail, you leave my parents alone. You don't have any further contact with my parents. Well, I'm sitting in that jail cell, and the guard comes and says, you got visitors. Like, visitors? Who would come to visit me? A little bit difficult if you haven't been in there, but they put me in a cell where there's a little plexiglass window like this that I got to look out, and a little metal kind of a speaker thing you got to talk to. And I'm looking out that window, and I see these two old people coming towards the window. And my first thought is, whoever they are, they got to be crazy. Why would anybody waste their time to come into a place like this to see somebody like me? And then I thought, you know what? They must be sincere for whatever they're doing because I got nothing to offer them. Well, it was Bill's parents. And in spite of what Bill told them, his parents were Christians. I don't know whether they thought, look, if it's this bad, we just got to go down and see this for ourselves. Or <laughs> but in spite of all of his warnings and telling them not to have anything to do with me, they came down to that jail. I don't remember everything they said. I do remember this. They looked through that little window, and they said, we're here because Jesus loves you, and we love you too. I don't want to tell you, that spoke to me in a way I can't even begin to describe to you. That these people, these clean, upright, respectable people, would come down to a place like that jail to a dirty convict dopehead like me and tell me we're here because Jesus loves you and we love you too. I went back to my cell and I'll tell you, I believe now as I look back, the Lord was, I know he was working on me. I went I don't even remember which day it was. It could have been the next day, but I'm, I'm laying in that cell, and I, I prayed what I said is probably one of the most untheological prayers that a person can pray. Laying there in the darkness of that cell, I just said, God, help me. And I believe that he read the sincerity of my heart more than he did the words of my lips. They sent their preacher down. Here he was in his nice, well-tailored suit, locked in that cell with me for two hours, telling me about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I went into a Bible study. A man and his wife came because a young couple of young men had committed a horrible crime, and a frantic mother in California had called to try to find somebody who could go visit her son and this man and his woman, this woman came, they drove 60 miles one way and back to visit these two young men, and they started a Bible study. I walked in the Bible study, and he said, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, the water turned to wine. My first thought was, that has absolutely nothing to do with me. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> and the Lord began to speak to my heart. Over the next few days, 
there was a lot going on in that jail at the time, and I'd get hold of these gospel tracts, you know, these religious pieces of paper with stuff written on them, and I'd read one, and it would say, if you want to be saved, do these six things. And so I'd try to do the six things, whatever they were, you know. And then I'd get another one and say, if you want to be saved, do these four things. You know, believe, confess, repent, acknowledge, I don't know, whatever they were, and I'm, I'm trying to do the four things. I knew I was a sinner. You see, I'd tried the programs, I'd tried the methods, I'd tried the techniques and all that. I'll tell you, what I needed was a Savior. That's what I needed. Somebody who could save me and give me the power to change my life. I was laying in that little cell, and the people, Bill's parents, they brought me a little New Testament. I'm reading through that New Testament, and, I, and one day it, it, the thought just hit me. I thought, you know, where could I turn in this Bible if I wanted to tell somebody else how to be saved? I hadn't thought about it in years, but the first time I went to prison, my best friend's mother, who was a Christian, wrote me a letter. And I could see that letter. I could still see it now. I hadn't thought about that letter in years, but at the bottom of the letter, she didn't even write out the reference, I mean the verse, she just wrote the reference. And I saw it then in my mind, Romans 10.13. And I opened that Bible to Romans 10.13, and I read, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I believed at that moment that I could tell somebody else how they could be saved, and I believed at that moment I could call on the name of the Lord. And I did in March of 1978. And guess what? <laughs> he saved me. It wasn't like bells and whistles and, you know, fireworks went off. But I knew, I knew my life was never going to be the same. I just knew it. You know, these are the two guys I was in the cell with. I might not look like much there, but I'm telling you, I was a different man inside. These two young men were 19 years old. Went AWOL from the Navy, committed a horrible crime. They tried him separately. He got two life sentences. He got the electric chair. I've done a little research since. After about 30-plus years in prison, I think both of their sentences were, I know that his death penalty was commuted. This guy got saved. He went on to become a chaplain's aide in one of the prisons in a place called Mount Vernon, Georgia. But that was my two cellmates. And what a time we would have in those jails. Matter of fact, if you look at the back of the cell, uh, Robbie here, who was an artist, had taken colored chalk, pastel sort of chalk, and the whole interior of our cell, he did all these pictures that had to get out of this guy's Catholic Bible. So our whole cell was <laughs> surrounded <laughs> with all this, you know, it was very, I don't know if they ever washed it for years because it was really nice artwork, but I got saved. You know, I still had to go to court uh, it was amazing. Uh, the <laughs> This just doesn't always happen. Now, my life had been one where I always kind of felt, you know, if they ever caught me for everything I'd ever done, I'd never see the light of day. So whenever I got busted, I never had the money for a lawyer, get a public defender, plead guilty, get the best you can get. That's just the way it works, right? So I knew whatever I was pleading to was less than what I'd already done anyway, so they came to me and they said, you're looking at 20 years. They, they're going to they're gonna offer you seven. I 
came that close. I'd always would have said yes before, and I don't know why. Just something in me just said, can you do any better? <laughs> and he kind of laughed. He says, with your record? I said, well, can you try? I didn't know that even the assistant public defender put in a word for me. The sheriff put in a word for me. That kind of stuff just doesn't happen usually. They were both members at the First Baptist Church where Bill's parents went and where their preacher went. I think they saw something. Came back and said, three years. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and they ran it concurrent with the parole time I had to do. So I still had to go to prison. But I want to tell you, I went to prison as a free man. I began to study the Word of God. I began to read the Scripture, and it began to make sense to me for the first time in my life. The Bible says if any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. You know, I could go on a long time. I'm not. It's almost time for us to stop and eat. I share my testimony for a number of reasons. I go back to what I first uh, mentioned in those scriptures at the beginning. Two women, quite different. Both needed to, to have their problem fixed so that they could once again be productive members of society at a mere minimum. Both of them met the Lord Jesus. Both of them had to place their faith in him. Both of them had their sins forgiven. One, a notorious sinner. The other, apparently not so. But they both needed to be saved. So don't get the idea when you look at this and look at me, like, I never was what he is. I'm not that bad a person. I've never done all those things. Not the issue at all. Before the eyes of God, you need his salvation just as much as I do. I share my testimony, too, because I want to encourage you. I've told this story before. I'm going to give you two quick stories that just so magnify to me the grace of God. I have a friend who lives in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. He's retired now after 25 years in the FBI uh, supervisory position. One year I was visiting him. He was still working for the Bureau then. He says, hey, come down uh, lunchtime. I'll give you a little tour of the office, you know. Okay, that'd be cool. So I go down and go up on this elevator where there really isn't a floor, but it stops anyway. And uh, we get off and go through this bulletproof stuff, you know, security to get in onto the secure floor. So once you're in there, everything is sealed up and, you know. So we're walking around. He says, this is an office. Those are computers. This is an office. That's a computer. As we turn a corner, we, we see this like a bank vault door. It's cracked open. He goes, hey, I wonder who left this open. Well, it wasn't a big deal because the floor's secure. So we walk into this room. It's about half the size of that room that's sitting over there. And all of a sudden, I realize we're standing in the armory. <laughs> and there's ammo stacked halfway to the ceiling. There's, you know, fully automatic weapons all around, grenade launchers, all this tear gas, everything, you know. And I'm standing there with him, and then it hits me. Is this the grace of God or what? <laughs> this guy would have been chasing me before, you know. Here I am standing in FBI headquarters in the armory, much less. What, a, what, what? the power of the gospel can do to make you a person changed. One year I was in one of my favorite places uh, in the city of Victoria on Vancouver Island in Canada. Beautiful spot. To me, one of the prettiest spots on the planet. 
And I was out doing a little shopping, so uh, I went to a little strip mall there, and probably a Hudson Bay or whatever it was, you know, the Bay, I guess they just call it. And uh, as I'm coming out of the mall, I see this guy coming down the sidewalk. Now, he's got black everything, okay? Black pants, black vest, you know, chains, studs. But that wasn't what got me. What got me was, as I'm looking at this guy, he's got a mohawk that looked like you could land an F-16 on, you know what I mean? Just sticking up there like this. It wasn't colored or dyed or anything, just this big, gigantic mohawk. So I'm coming out, and my first thought when I look at this guy is, what a freak. You know what? As soon as I said it, this little voice inside me said, you know what? That's what people thought about you with your long hair and your ratty clothes and your foul mouth and your bad attitude. I, I just, as he got closer, and, and I'm a fairly good-sized guy. This guy was big. I mean, he was taller than me, bigger than me, and he's skulking down the sidewalk, you know, and as he got just about even to me, I looked up at him and I said, hey, man, nice do." He looks down at me and says, what did you say? I said, nice do. You got to work with that thing to get that thing. How do you get that going on there, you know? No, man, no big deal, you know, and we talked a little bit. And I said, look, I just want you to know that Jesus Christ changed my life and forgave my sins. And what he did for me, he can do for you. He said, thanks, man. Walked on. Why do I share that story? Because when you see that person out there, and maybe you know that person or a person like them, and you think it'll never happen, their life will never change, they're never going to be any different, they're too far gone, you just remember that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. There is life-changing power. It has not diminished one bit still available today for all who come to Christ and trust him as Savior. May that encourage us as Christians as we seek to communicate the gospel to a world that's in need out there, what the Lord can do. Let's look to him in a word of prayer. Father, you know every heart that's in this room, young, old, and in between. You know where people are in life. You know whether they've trusted you and placed their faith in you for salvation or not. And you can speak to hearts individually in a way that no human being can do. So right now, Lord, we would ask that you would speak to hearts. If there's anybody here, young or older, and they're not saved, they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, they've never placed their faith and trust in him, Lord, we pray that right now, in their own words, in their own way, they would turn to you confess the fact that they're a sinner and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, for those of us who are believers in Christ, encourage us in what the living Christ can do because the gospel is not a thing. It's a person in whom you have believed. And so pr we pray that you'd encourage us in what the power of the gospel can do as people believe on a living Savior and experience the life-changing power through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
thank you for what the Lord Jesus has done. Now, Lord, as we go to partake of this meal, we thank you for everyone who's been involved, for all the labor that's gone into it, for the blessing that we have of being able to eat and enjoy good things. And we give you thanks for this food in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if any of you have things you want to discuss of a spiritual nature, I'll be up here for a while. I'd love to talk with you. Thank you.